0: Welcome to the Green Lectionary Podcast, a production of Creation Justice Ministries. The Green Lectionary is a conversation on scripture through the lens of creation justice. My name is Derek Weston, and today we'll be looking at a text for the fourth week of Advent from the Revised Common Lectionary. For this episode, I am joined by three guests, Dr. Brent Strawn, Professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School, Dr. Melissa Jackson, faculty member of Sophia Seminary, and Joelle Novi, Director of DMV Interfaith Power and Light. Before we jump into our show, I just want to give a quick plug for one of Creation Justice Ministry's other programs, Blue Theology. Blue Theology is a place where current science and marine biology meets a theology of creation justice. Each summer, we host youth groups to engage in experiential learning, service projects, and contemplative practice with God's marine creation. We have several locations across the country, and registration is open now. To learn more, go to www.bluetheology.com. Okay. Our passage for today comes from Psalm 89 verses 1 to 4 and 19 to 26. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. And you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant, David. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. Then skipping down to verse 19. Then you spoke in a vision to your faithful one and said, I have set the crown on one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So friends, where is creation in this passage? And Brent, maybe I'll start with you.
1: Well, uh, thanks, Derek. It's good to be with you all and nice to be on the podcast. Um, Psalm eighty nine is is a long one. We we only get a little bit of it in the in the lectionary reading, and that's always a bit unfortunate when the lectionary uh, slices and dices for us because there's all kinds of stuff in here uh, that the psalmist wanted us, wanted us to have because it's a whole big long psalm. In fact, it's a really important one that I'm sure we'll get into as we go. It's fifty two verses in its full extent and closes down book three of the psalter and and has an important structural role to play in the book of psalms. Um, but, you know, if we just at least begin with the the verses uh, that are on the docket for for this particular reading, this particular Sunday, um, right out of the gate, it strikes me that verse 2 mentions the heavens um, and that God's faithfulness is compared in its security or firmness, as the word in the New Revised Standard Version here, as the heavens, and, um, and so, you know, right out of the gate, something about God is compared to something uh, that we can see in the created order. And that's 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 intriguing. You know, the, the heavens is a large category, the skies or whatever. And in the ancient Near Eastern conception, maybe that's not just what you can see with your eyes. It's also what you can't see, where the gods live or where the divine beings reside or what have you. But uh, that struck me in reading it this morning before the podcast, that right out of the gate, um, God's faithfulness is, is compared to a created thing. So uh, that's that's the first thing I would say. Uh, Joelle, you want to jump in?
2: Yes, like Brent, I I very much uh, focused on um, this assurance in the opening lines that um that we can be confident into future generations for eternity of god's steadfastness and faithfulness because because, because like the heavens they will always be there and as a climate activist working with faith communities i actually felt some poignancy and some uh in that in that kind of assurance because i think for our ancestors of course the heavens would always be there and of course the heavens are a reminder of of God's unchanging eternal commitment to God's people. Um, but in, in this generation, you know, we're with the climate crisis, uh, you know, human beings are the driving force behind the world's the earth's climate for the first time ever. And um and we can't feel a sense of confidence and assurance that into all the future generations the heavens will be as they as they always have been. Um, and and I it, it just reminded me how Um, spiritually disorienting the reality of the climate crisis can be for folks and that that's coming from a place of, of losing access to that sense of of absolute steadfast assurance and and unchanging um that 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 the the natural world will forever be an unchanging reminder of God's unchanging uh faithfulness um that 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 we really get uh, challenged and 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 our, our theologies get challenged
3: if we take the climate crisis seriously.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, Melissa, you want to jump in?
3: Sure. Um, the other, at least overt, reference to something in creation then is in verse 25, near the end of the passage. The, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers which is a reference to how God will empower this chosen one to also have some role in creation, which clearly asks the question of what is humanity's role in co-caring for creation with God and and the extent to which God has empowered this leader in this text. But then I guess the next question is how we are empowered um, with respect to how to care for creation and this is um and this is more of a um a a reference to power in the traditional sense That this is the leader who will exert power and and to have power which is a different kind of slant than to like if we're thinking about genesis we're thinking about care and stewardship of creation so that's always a, a a complication in the Text. And I will say, which is what's been unsaid so far, but we will all four have noticed is that the part of this psalm that deals most directly with creation is left out of the lectionary text um, for this Sunday. So we don't get the full um, references here in what we've read, but there are others in that in between the, the piece that's been excised from the lectionary um, reading for this day.
1: Yeah, if I could piggyback on that, that's all right, um, Melissa. You're specifically thinking, I guess, of, of verses five, right, to to eighteen, which is um, reminiscent of of other Psalm texts, particularly in my mind, Psalm twenty four, but but others as well, Psalm seventy four. Um, and here, you know, again, you got the heavens praising uh, the Lord, the Lord's wonders. So what Joel said about, you know, the impact of such an image, if the, you know, world isn't there in the same way that, 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 that leaves its mark as it were, not just on the planet or whatever, but on, but on the, on theology, on the metaphors for theology, for the understanding of God or for God's praise in the Psalms, uh, experience. I mean, there if the heavens declared the glory of God and there's no more heavens, or they're not quite as glorious as they were before, then certainly God's, Uh, glory is also impinged upon. But as I read it, and of course, this is the great thing about reading a text afresh with, with different lenses or different concerns in mind, you know, I thought, oh yeah, there's the heavens, there's the skies, verse five or six. There's, oh, look at verse nine, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. There's a sense in which, in ancient Israelite conception, the creation is also a threatening thing, something that is scary and that has to be um, kept at bay, at least in its worst iterations. Um, And that's part of the witness of the Psalms as well, and that God has the power to do that. And I think that has to be kept in mind when Melissa brings up this really great point about the the king or the royal figure or whatever it is who, who exercises some sort of power that that power has to sort of be seen in some way as related to the divine power and, and in concert with it in its best iteration. Otherwise, in my mind, it doesn't make sense or we have to sort of worry excessively about it. But in, in the Psalms, and I confess, I'm still trying to get my head around this, the king in the Psalms is not my favorite part of the Psalms, <laughs> but, but the king is there. And I think in the best iteration, the king is there because the king represents the best instantiation in the ideal form. Of the of the ideal Israelite who um, serves as God's representative in the world, but that made me think also as I reread the Psalms that you know well, where is creation in the Psalm? In the in the King, you know, and in and in the Psalmist, and also in the foes that are mentioned, the enemies that are mentioned, or in the holy oil that's mentioned. I mean, it's just sort of once you have this lens in mind and you're reading through it, there's just it's everywhere, right? And and it's everywhere in kind of nuanced ways and in ways that we might like and in certain ways maybe we don't like and we have to sort of figure out, oh well how are the foes part of create? What does it mean that the foes are are part of creation? and and does that mean we think differently about my foes or might there really be foes? you know all kinds of interesting things like that. but but I, I really wanted to uh, underscore Moses' point that there's all kinds of stuff that sort of left out in that that key section, which is really the praise of God. Before this, before the psalmist starts thinking hard about what's happened to the king, because the greatness of the king turns out well, it hasn't been so great at the end of the psalm.
2: And you know, I read these, um, I read psalms, you know, from from a Jewish perspective and context where many of them, not all, but some of them, are used routinely in liturgy, right? Like the whole opening part of our prayer service is de Zimra, which are like songs of praise, mostly just singing and reading psalms. Um, and in that context, these recitations of how nature praises God, you know, the, the rivers, the rivers rush and the, and the birds sing and the, and the waves crash. And, and the, it's always implicit in that as Melissa raised, it's like, well, what is our role in this? What is our role in this chorus? Right. And if, if that recitation of the natural world, praising God each in its own way, um, uh, you know is, is recited by human beings who are, are saying these psalms, you know, in a worship, in worship, it, it implicitly sort of says, and our way of doing that, you know, our way of doing that is by singing these psalms, <laughs> Um, uh, and it sort of, it, 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 to me, so, psalms often feel like a, a working out of this question of, you know, that the angels sing in the heavens, and the, and the river and the mountains clap their hands, and we, what do we do? Well, we I guess we sing these songs, uh, sing these psalms, or we try to sing them as as in the same spirit in which those other the the rest of creation praises,
1: and don't you think, Joel, that that does something to us, right? I mean, if we do that enough times, we start thinking, you know, words of Psalm 96 and 98 are kind of what you're evoking with the, you know, the rivers will clap their hands or the trees, I mean, who knew that that rivers had hands, you know, that they could clap, you know, but but if I read it long enough and it starts getting into my bones, into my imagination, then, you know, I, I can become, I think, a different person, um, mm-hmm. at least in my thinking about the world, that, that it's sort of, um, the, the heavens are filled with the glory of God for that, for that matter, or, uh, you know um to to quote John Calvin the great uh Protestant reformer you know that the world is the theater of God's glory I think the Psalms are uh a, a, and the recitation of the Psalms as you're saying is a kind of a way to suddenly experience that not just sort of think it but kind of feel it at a profound level
2: the the fascinating thing for for me though is and like the the Psalms don't speak in one voice about what our role is right there's different strains so um, one of the inconsistencies that that the Talmud, the Jewish rabbinic tradition, picks up on is that later in the same Psalm, there are the lines, the heaven is yours and the earth to the world and all it holds, which is reminiscent of other Psalms that say, you know, the earth is the Lord's is one of the famous ones and the fullness thereof. Um, but elsewhere in Psalm 115, it says, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth God has given to humanity, right? Mm-hmm. So the 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 uh, Rabbi Levy in the Talmud picks up on this inconsistency. Which one is it? Is it that the, that the earth is the Lord's or is it that the earth is the Lord's and the, the I mean the heavens are the Lord's and the earth has been given to humanity and that and this is often a, a a way the Jewish rabbinic tradition raises a potential contradiction and then resolves it as actually consistent and and the the way they resolve it is to say well the heavens and the earth both belong to God before a blessing is recited but after a human being acknowledges the divine source of the earth of the earth so like you're holding an apple in your hand and it belongs to god and then you say you know blessed is the one who brings the fruit of the tree before you eat it and if you do that then then the earth has been given to humanity um <laughs> which uh is one but so that that just th- this psalm just reminded me of that sort of mm-hmm. discourse around like where where do human beings fit you know the heavens the heavens uh and and uh, and God and the angels, you know, are 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 depicted a lot, and the animals and natural world are depicted. And then there's this sort of question mark about where where we fit and where our voice fits. Um, that I think gets mm-hmm. elaborated and worked out, and and has multiple um, possibilities expressed in the song. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and and Brent, you threw in a you threw in a complication here, right? You mentioned that the king is part of creation um but then you also mentioned that the foes are part of creation and that is incredibly problematic (laughs) um because i think part of you know if we look at the scripture we we see these places where we are looking at creation with reverence but also with a little bit of fear. And if we, I think part of our issues with our theology with creation is that we have oftentimes treated creation as a foe, a foe to be conquered, a foe to be overtaken, a foe to be, to, to make, submit to our will. Um, that, when we, when we add creation to the list of foes, I think we have um, we have a really dicey way of looking at this that becomes incredibly problematic, um, but also seems very consistent when we think of the fact that these things that, Joelle, as you said earlier, have been, for the vast majority of human history, thought of as permanent, as unmovable of unshakable. And we are now at a place as humanity where we can conquer it, where we can make it do what we want it to do. Um, Mm. It's, it's, it's complicating, it feels like it's a it's a complicating uh, part of the image here.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I can jump in and really kind of echoing some things that Joel brought up already it, you know, it's like, It is disconcerting to think about creation as a foe or parts of creation as a foe, especially if we kind of we want to really develop a robust theology of creation and creation care and all that jazz. Um, but I think it's probably also important to not skirt that idea even if we want to ultimately uh, contain it or or transcend it in some sort of way. I mean, for one thing it's it's present in the in the in the biblical witness um, that and of course that that makes sense to i think to ancient readers who would have been very much threatened by natural forces in a way that we are not if we are in our hurricane shelter or what have you um with reinforced concrete and and all the rest but even now i think the human project expends immense amounts of energy in containing the threat that the world poses to us. I mean, technology is an excessive um, attempt to master our environment's medicine. I mean, for heaven's sake, I mean, we've got to contain these bacteria or these things that that come up that are part of the natural world, right? That get us eventually all in the end, one way or the other. We're going to expend massive amounts of human energy and capital and money and and creativity in the medical field to, to stave those things off as, as, as long as possible and not all of that is bad right and that maybe not all of it is good if you think about it in this way you know the excessive uh, attempt to manipulate our environment or to or to contain um, the forces of death when they are in a, inevitable in a in a patient at the very last stages of their life for instance you know this those things, though, are. It seems to me like the, the those threats are still real to us, even if we don't think of them as like a thunderstorm. And there's the the weather god Baal behind it, and he's gonna zap me. Uh, but there's there's cancer, and there's um, you know septic um, infections, and there's things like this. And and we do fight those. But then also maybe a more generous construal that even the foes are part of the created order might make us think a little differently about some of those foes. Maybe they aren't quite as threatening or we shouldn't fight them quite as hard. I think there's ways in which um, the Psalter brings the foes close um, mm. at times. Not always, right? But, but one of the things this altar does is hand those foes over to God, I think, and that God is ultimately the one in charge of their payback. That's the cursing psalms, I think. But there's other ways, I think, that the psalms do suggest other ways of relating to the to the human foe. Um, they are threatening and difficult and problematic, but but there's ways that God will see to them and that maybe that that God will will bring them close as well.
3: Well, I just wanted to just for a moment to call attention to the in the Hebrew the word the word can be translated fear and worship. You know, there's a there's a word that holds within that both and I think when we as humans who are in the created order but we're not in charge of the created order um we have a particular posture Towards the created order. That is, when we talk about fear of the Lord, it's not like I'm cowering in a corner because I'm afraid I'm going to be hit. It's that I have a particular posture towards whatever, usually God, that understands that I'm part of this order, but but I also need to to have a reverence for um, for God. And I think if we we can. Uh, there is the the bringing up of the enemies in this text, but also when we talk about fear in the context of the Hebrew Bible, there is scope there to talk about reverence. And And the fear that you feel when you're standing at the shore and you see the power of the ocean and the power of the waves, you're not afraid necessarily, but if those waves start coming towards you, That fear becomes something different. It has a different quality. So I think there's a lot to be teased out in our understanding of, you know, what our relationship, what that fear looks like when we're talking about our relationship to God, but also our relationship to creation. That there's a reverence in that, but it can escalate to something that looks a lot more like I'm terrified now because creation is bigger and more powerful than I am threatening me in that sense.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, I want to shift to our second question, which is how is God calling us to interact with creation through this passage? Um, in light of some of the things that we have, and uh, in, in light of some of the ways that we have identified creation being present in this passage, how is God calling us to interact with it?
2: Yeah, um, especially in that second selection where it's talking about enemies and 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 those who hate you and that God will be your buddy in um in kind of um prevailing over these these your 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 enemies and um and i i didn't imagine creation or or more figurative foes i imagine like you know other people that you think of are as less you know less holy than you are um and i i guess it most mostly my reaction was that this is the kind of theology i think doesn't serve us very well in this mo- in this time um and that that a lot of the and i i i believe you know this comes out of the hebrew bible i think it, it gets picked you know that it has elements that you know jews struggle with now and i think it also gets picked up and gets um you know becomes problematic too in, in christian um teaching but like this idea that you know that you will that um God, God will exalt you out of the other people, right? Like that, you will be lifted out of the context and out of the the, conc- you know, out of the world in which we exist uh, concretely, and 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 like elevated away, uh, to and and saved as a kind of, um, you know, remnant or like kind of <laughs> scurried off. You know, I've um, I've done a lot of uh, learning from Rabbi Julia Watts Belzer at Georgetown about the limitations of the Noah's Ark story and 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 the idea of sort of like let's just save like a little remnant god will just see to like the fact that like you know like accept basically accept the destruction of almost everything and and just scurry away with um with the with the good people and we can be sure that we'll be on the boat so we don't have to worry too much about what gets left behind and i think that that uh i i worry that to the extent that we read this this particular passage as calling us to have that kind of orientation, I think it, 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 um, it creates a competitive zero-sum world in which we have to compete with each other to be God's chosen, uh, selection, selected, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the, um, to make the team, to make the cut, um, and it also, um, imagines that our salvation will, will carry us out of the, out of the the context of our of our world on earth (laughs) um uh when we really you know i I think that the climate crisis calls us to deepen our sense of interdependence to expand our sense of what's worth saving (laughs) to imagine a, a a god who who cares not just about um you know those who God wishes to exalt, but about absolutely everyone, including the people you sometimes think of as your enemies. Um, and so, my my, I don't I don't know if this is too um. Too counter counter, <laughs> too too challenging for for this co- this conversation. But but my my first reaction was that I I struggle with 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 this particular theology, and I don't I don't know that it's the strain of our traditions we want to really lean on in this moment. I think it actually doesn't doesn't
3: help us a whole lot.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Melissa, do you want to jump in?
3: Sure. Um, I think this is where, you know, the the lectionary giveth and the lectionary taketh away. (laughs) Um, I don't really know if we can faithfully read this part of the psalm without reading the second part of the psalm. Mm -hmm. Because we have this affirmative first half, and then we have this second half that says, but, right, which is... Which is the Hebrew Bible's position on kingship throughout? Like we want it, we don't want it. It's a good idea. It's a bad idea. It's a, it, it's it's God's idea. It's human's idea. Like work. There's this, and those passages are interwoven with each other, and there's never a final decision. And so this psalm takes that question up, like what is kingship for Israel? And it, it was, and and Brent already talked about. This. Like it's like it it it's a good thing, except when it's not a good thing. <laughs> um, so so I I believe here then we have permission to take up both sides of the conversation. That is this the theology in the first part of the Psalm, the Psalm, the text that we're given for this Sunday, is this the theology that we want to hold on to? Or do we wanna choose the other? Or do we do what I think scripture wants us to do, which is to hold those intention um, which is more complicated, but it's also more organic and it's also more true to who we are as humans who do the right thing sometimes and and then don't. Mm. Um, and I, I, of course, that, I didn't anywhere in there say creation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what does it mean when we interact with creation? Well, it seems, first of all, we need to make sure that hubris has not got a hold of us. And that we do think we are like David, and we do have our hands on the sea and the ocean and the rivers, that creation is ours to try and bend to our own will. But yet maintain the idea that we do have a responsibility, and it's been given to us by God in some form, and so we darn well better take that seriously. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm going to stop there.
0: Brent, right, you want to jump in?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about what has been said. And I think it's is very helpful and 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 insightful and interesting to ponder this question. Particularly it goes back to my initial comment or two about, you know, my own pondering of the, the royal figure. Um, and I think the only way I can, as I said, make sense of the royal figure is in the it in its best possible iteration. I mean its best possible iteration this is the sort of benevolent monarch who um, takes care in the ancient near eastern world of widows and orphans i mean that's one of their primary things to do was to take care of of people who are down and out and to promulgate law just law and all the rest that's the ideal of course the real never matches the ideal (laughs) and so that's why the bible is full of stories about uh, these kings even israel's sort of favorite king david right Uh, they preserve the most horrific stories about what David did, um, and yet he doesn't get censored. He still is in there, you know, and the Psalms, so much of the Psalms get sort of dedicated to him, and so it's a very curious thing. Somehow we have to think it through, and I i confess I haven't done it, um, at least not to my own satisfaction. I know there have people who've spent a lot of ink and time on it uh, and think, it, they think higher thoughts and better thoughts than mine on it, but But I do think in light of what's been said, a couple of things might be helpful in the call to action. One one might be to say, we are not the king, you know, know? and the average Israelite wasn't the king. Uh, The average Israelite who may have said a psalm, might have thought about the king, thought about the monarch in a highfalutin elevated way, but they knew that they weren't that person. And so maybe we arrogate to ourselves too much when we sort of put ourselves in that position. Maybe we ought to think we're not that position at all, right? And and so not think of ourselves in that royal function. I think that goes to Joel's concern and critique. And maybe if we stop thinking of ourselves as monarchs, as rulers of creation, uh, that we would stop acting like it, especially in the worst possible iteration of that that vision. Um, but the other thing is is that maybe is as Melissa said, if we if we read this psalm quite. Quite closely, the whole thing. The monarch, who supposedly is, is, is so great that God promises all this to, God also has a big contingency clause in verse 30. You know, if the, 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 the monarch's children, you know, forsake my law and do not walk according to my ordinances, and they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish them. So this is not a kind of carte blanche, you know, do whatever you want. This is very much a ruled. Ruling, you know, this is kind of a—you've got to be in line with the Torah, and if you're not, your rule is going to be short, and and it will have um, an expiration date. And then what the Psalm ends up doing is sort of say how, guess what? The expiration date seems to have hit because this great <laughs> king is now completely bereft. The king is completely abandoned. All of God's steadfast love and promises to the king and his dynasty all of them are in tatters. And so maybe that is another way to sort of inhabit this problem and this difficult image of the king that Joel has raised for us is that, well, maybe maybe if you do inhabit that, and especially you inhabit that vision wrongly, you're gonna end up with nothing as well. And even if you think that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread or whatever, it may, you may also find yourself abandoned, rejected, alone, and feeling like God has, 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 went, has, has gone back on all of the promises. So I think the king is, the royal figure, something to worry about and also maybe to inhabit, not to inhabit in its kind of worse iteration, obviously, but then to possibly inhabit in its, in its um, abasement here at the end of the psalm. Uh, so I'm wondering if that might bring us, if we did that to a very humble attitude vis-a-vis our role if we do if we do sort of insist to 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 read ourselves in the place of this monarch
0: i'm really challenged in thinking about how we how we connect this um to creation and our relationship to creation um because as we we stated at you know the opening of this psalm kind of speaks to um the skies and the skies as something that will be lasting and permanent And then if we do fold in um, the second part of of the psalm, um, we we have the king who is exalted, who's on God's side. We have the warning that the king's children, if they screw up, not so much on God's side, then the oops, we're not on God's side anymore. You're being punished. And then sort of the response to oops, we're not on God's side we're being punished is, how long, oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all mortals who can live and never see death. And so the contrast of God creation being forever, being permanent, and then we mortals even if we're the king, being transient, being subject to even death. Um, and, And again, if we fold ourselves in as part of creation, recognizing that we have now recognized that those things that we thought were permanent, those things that we thought could never be moved, are now like us also subjected to many of the things that can cause decay and destruction and harm and pollution um it brings creation into that space of asking for mercy the way that we are asked that this that the the psalmist is asking for mercy how long oh god how long will we be subjected to these forces um Again, this is this is really challenging, and it's a really challenging for me as a Christian. And Joe, I'm so I'm, I'm really grateful for your being here, and I'm really grateful for your insight. I'm really challenged that we decided that this should be a part of Advent. <laughs> <laughs> that we we and 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 not only not only did that we thought it should be part of Advent, that we then like cut it off at the knees, and didn't give the full picture of of the role of the king um so i you know i i think one of the things that we often do on this podcast is really um muddy the water <laughs> and i and i think that's that's what this you know i think this is asking us to struggle with um with some big complexities one of which is what is the role of you know dominion domination Um, how far can we take that before we get to the place where we have turned our back on god and we've turned our back on god's creation um there's a lot of complicated things here there's a lot of messy things here that are not just simply let's be happy about a good king which is i think what the lectionary folks wanted us to do so with all that in mind, where is a call to action here? How do we how do we how do we I know, now that now that it's clear as mud, um how do we how do we take this incredibly complicated view of creation of what authority and domination and dominion look like? How do we take this and turn it into some sort of call to action for what it means to be faithful um, faithful stewards of creation faithful um, members of an ecosystem how do we take all of this and and move it forward to a call to action um joelle do you want to jump in
2: sure um the i I share your struggle with Kingship as a metaphor. Um and uh, in uh the the Jewish liturgical calendar, we really lean into the king thing like mostly in the high holidays in the fall. Um and we sing Adonai Malach, Adonai Malach, Adonai God is the king and will be the king forever and ever. Um in that in that at that time of year. And I think one of the values I've come to find in that theology is you are affirming who is the king, but you're also affirming who is not the king. <laughs> who is not the king. And, uh, and during many of the generations when people said these words and affirmed over and over again that God was king, they were under various empires and regimes and and um, uh, folks who had power over them who were um, who were not who they were affirming we're not we're not their king Um and um maybe today that's um the corporate powers that would seek to destroy our planet. Um, and maybe that's you know, the industrial polluters that have prevailed in destroying the one and only world we have, um, uh, you know, and not been held accountable l- largely for for, you know, generations. and um uh, like I think I think, and the, and we can be reminded by this imagery that affirms God's kingship over the natural world. Also about the limitations of our own role. So, you know, if 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 we are affirming that God should set the, you know, set the the clock of, of the seasons and and should bring forth the, you know, the tides and whatnot, then like our 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 through you know industrial pollution, like you know, unmooring those systems and and becoming you know, it's it's really inappropriate to step into that role when 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 these psalms affirm that that is God's role. Um, the the one other um, the one other place I I feel like this kind of affirming God's kingship and God's uh, dominion on the earth can be valuable is about kind of challenging capitalism a little bit and like when we say the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof or the text in this psalm is the heaven is yours and the earth to the world and all it holds i mean that has to put a little asterisk at least next to the fact the way we operate which is that each of us think of ourselves as being able to own land i mean own parts of the land that we that we are on uh and many of us as as um as settlers on that land right so um so I, I guess I, I hope that we can find a call to action in even in these texts that kind of affirm God's kingship and God's dominion in a very um classical way by by sort of using it to contrast with well who is not king and who is not uh, does not have dominion over the earth and, and maybe that can be a, a good lesson for us.
0: Melissa.
3: I would I would add another thing is that anytime we're in the Psalms, we are in a worship context. So if we think of worship as an act of the gathered people, then one of the calls to action would be to invite this conversation, but also this rehearsing of the acts of God into our worship and allow that our worship can be a time to grapple with the complexities that it doesn't have to be something sort of clean and clear that praise doesn't have to be devoid of question or that um to accept one viewpoint is to reject another that we can hold viewpoints together and allow that complexity to be part of of how we are as a gathered people in worship Um, and then if we think of kind of for Christians, at least the final act of worship is descending forth, that then we carry that posture into the world and that we are in creation as complex beings, that we don't place ourselves in a hierarchy that puts us above um, that creation in any way. Um, So I, I think that's another piece that that action is the the worship nature of the psalms and how it 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 calls us to bring that complexity into our worship life as a community
1: thank you for that yeah brent yeah i think joel and melissa have already hit the best things i just uh re- reiterate a couple of little points um one is i think melissa's point about holding things in tension is very useful i think it's also something that is difficult to do sometimes for long, um, or at least it's hard to do when we need to do something that's action-based. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to have to choose one of these options. And so I think we can think about the tensiveness or or the multiple range of options that Scripture gives us on, on any sort of topic as um, a kind of we can think about that prudentially as well as theoretically not just that these are kind of held together or offered as as options but maybe prudentially they give us options that we should ponder in the particular moment at hand and so as has already been said the moment at hand suggests that human beings should probably not think of themselves in uh, royal um categories and never in the in the in the negative sense of that that metaphor But in the positive sense, perhaps so. Invasive species, I mean, kudzu, you know, and these sort of things are overtaking the South. Maybe it wouldn't hurt to bring some goats in to beat some of that (laughs) back before all of Georgia is taking over. That would be a kind of benevolent... um, you know control as it were bringing bringing the goats in to beat the kudzu back or something so again i think some of these things can be viewed in, in negative or, or positive lights we want to obviously hit the positive ones and and that's the hard thing because as, as human beings we, we, we tend toward the negative <laughs> but I, I think that tensiveness helps us maybe think about prudential options and and what the best case uh you know is, is is what what's called for in this particular case the other thing i wanted to pick up on from from joel is um i think that's exactly right that that uh, to to affirm the the king or god's kingship or in the christian calendar with advent to, to affirm the kingship of christ is to affirm that we are not that person but subject to that person and subject to what that person would want us to do Even David again, I think, with the Israelites, looked to David as this example. And David, though, had his problems, and they are preserved for us. They don't. We don't sanctify. Well, the Chronicler kind of sanctifies. uh, You know, David kind of washes him of all his his (laughs) and Uriah issues, but Kings doesn't, and Samuel doesn't, and you know, at that point, one of the things that stands out about David is how quick he is when confronted by Nathan to confess his sin. Maybe that is one of the reasons why Israel valorizes David, uh, not just because he's good on the harp or he can, you know, compose some rhymes, but because he's quick to to, to confess. And so maybe there is, even in the king motif, uh, a place for us to think even the king has to confess. And and look at what happens in Psalm 89, right? Psalm 89, the king is ultimately abased, and in light of the conditional clause in the psalm, it really has to be considered that the king is abased because disobedience has happened. I mean, this is a, a psalm that seems to know of the destruction of Jerusalem and all the rest. So the abasement of the psalm in my mind. So of course the first part of the psalm is in Advent because this is about the the kingship of Christ. But the second part of the psalm, the abasement, that should be in the Passion Week. I mean, that should be mm-hmm. in in the lectionary for for Passion. It's not. I don't think. I tried to search real quickly. I don't think so, <laughs> um, but the ending of the psalm too, I think, is really important to think about because maybe if we inhabit the full psalm, we say, ah, we have made mistakes in the royal role, maybe by by arrogating mm-hmm. ourselves to it. And now all is lost. And as you said so well, Derek, where is God now? How long, now we're confronted with our mortality, the mortality and limitations of our whole ecosphere. What, what then? Lord, remember, remember, rem- you know, this lament. And then just the, this little uh, a hint of, of hope at the end, with blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. That's just the doxology, it's the concluding doxology of book three, but it's there, it's present in Psalm 89. And it suggests that after everything is lost, there may yet still be hope in the blessings of the Lord and that the Lord deserves blessings, even despite this, this ending. And right after book three is where we get book four, where we get all these Adonai Malach Psalms that Joelle was kind of drawing our attention to, where the Lord is king, the Lord is king, the Lord is king. And so um, those are a couple of things, just picking up on on aspects Joel and Melissa already raised. Hmm. Yeah, this is really good. I, I, I'm
0: especially grateful for the call to hold on to tension. Um, and, and maybe, uh, Melissa, as you said, to bring the tension into our worship space, because we don't usually like to do that. We don't usually like to have a whole lot of tensions in our worship space. Um, but, you know, as, as I, as I'm listening to you all, I, I am, of course, you know, of course I understand why the creators of the lectionary gave us just this little sliver of a psalm, but the fullness of the psalm tells a better story. It tells a it tells a story about power and dominion gone wrong, particularly as as um, that power and dominion was not subject to God's will. And God's desire for how power should be used in the world and as we think about this um, as Christians and as we we recognize the as, as for Christians we recognize the coming of our King into the world and yet what we see of Jesus as King is Jesus doesn't use power the way that the other kings of the world use power and so to have this psalm that gives us kind of this complete, this complete rise and fall of power, and, and and put that in context of Jesus who uses power so completely differently than the kings of the world, what a what a much richer Advent conversation that would be, lectionary writers. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I am grateful to you all for bringing that complexity into this conversation because i think it's i think it's really what what is needed and required for us to think about where creation is in this passage so thank you all for this really rich and um and not easy um not neat not clean but pretty um pretty rich conversation thank you all for this
1: thanks there
3: thank Thank you. you
0: Thank you for joining us for the Green Lectionary Podcast. This episode was produced by Sprocket Wagner and the music was provided by Christian McIver. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word with a good review. And leave us a comment to let us know how you've used the show and how we can make it more useful for your ministry. You can learn more about this and other programs of Creation Justice Ministries at creationjustice.org.
2: Our story comes alive within these
1: pages, for every time and place throughout the ages. God speaks and is heard, and the enduring word calls us to care for our world as we share the love that can set creation free.
2: Restoring the earth to wholeness, peace, and harmony Let the songs of the water, land,
1: and sky resound Cause together we're all bound Within these cages, there's always new life to be found